that in mind. And for those of you that have joined us this morning via the internet, we do welcome you. Thank you so much. And along with that congregation, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. If you're keeping track, this is the 14th message from 1 Peter. And in the first 12 verses, we uh, focused on hope in the gospel, although the entire uh, first epistle focuses on hope. In fact, Peter carries it all the way through his second uh, epistle. He'll speak in chapter 3 about the second coming, which is um, influential to his thought here in the first 12 verses. But a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago now, we started to look at uh, verse 13, and verse 13 through chapter 2 and verse 3 focuses primarily on holiness in the gospel. And so I want to read this morning, we'll, we'll start again with verse 13, and we'll read down through verse 21. There are two great themes here, one is holiness, and then obviously one is redemption through the Redeemer, and so we'll begin to break that down for you this morning. Therefore, uh, Peter says, gird, your, uh, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, rest your ho hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written... who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Faith and hope are in God. Holiness and the gospel. So last Sunday we looked at distractions. We'll continue somewhat about that this morning. But today we're going to look at non Conformity, or start to look at nonconformity, what it means to be holy. What is Peter saying? What does the Bible mean when it talks about holiness? Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, bless, I pray your word through the word and the spirit who is the author of the word. Uplift Jesus Christ in order that we may see him in all of his revealed glory, in order that we may receive his grace and the forgiveness of our sins, in order that we may be redeemed, and because we have been redeemed, in order that we may not conform to this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So tomorrow is 4th of July. And I want to read something to you this morning, and I want you to hear this. I think as I look out on the congregation today, most of you, if not all of you, are naturally born citizens. In other words, you 
did not have to immigrate to this country. You did not have to go through the classes, uh, await any period of time to become a citizen. You were naturally born. The Constitution, among other things, says that the President of the United States must be naturally born. He or she cannot be an immigrant. When you are an immigrant, you have to take an oath and you have to swear allegiance to the United States of America. I've never had to do that. Now, perhaps in service, armed forces and so forth, that's been done. But most of us have never had to do that. I want to read to you this morning the oath, and I want you to think about it. Quote, I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been subject or citizen, that I will support and defend the Constitution and laws of the United States of America against all enemies foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I will bear arms on behalf of the United States when required by the law, that I will perform non-combatant service in the armed forces of the United States when required by law, that I will perform work of national importance under civilian direction when required by the law, and that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purposes of evasion, so help me God. So you and I have never had to swear to this oath, but millions have. My great-grandfather on my Granny Carey's side, her dad, immigrated from Ireland and came uh, through uh, the island there in New York City and was an immigrant into this great country. Remember these words. And remember that as much as we love this country, as believers that are born again, we have sworn allegiance to Jesus Christ. We are now in the portion of the first chapter that brings before our reading the commands of Scripture. First slide, if you would, brother. When we started 1 Peter, this was one of the first quotes that was on that slide. We are now into the 103rd slide. So in 14 weeks, we've covered, in fact, this morning, probably 110 or so slides. Edmund Clowney, who is with the Lord, one of the, the uh, commentaries that I'm using, said this about 1 Peter. He said, it is the most condensed 
New Testament resume of the Christian faith and of the conduct it inspires. It is a model of a pastoral letter. And that's where we are in verse 13. He takes what he has taught us doctrinally, and now he is applying it. We're in the body now of Peter's pastoral heart, his shepherding heart. We've been studying that in the book of Ezekiel. And he is calling us through the Holy Spirit to Christian conduct. He gives in verses 13 through 17 five instructions about our minds and our lifestyle. And the first one is, of course, found here in verse 13. Let your mind's activity rest upon the confidence of the future grace of Christ Jesus' return. Last Sunday we closed that. I reminded you that grace is eternal. Grace doesn't end when we go home to be with the Lord. Since it is an attribute of God, and since his attributes are eternal, it doesn't fade away. And so our mind's activity, he said, gird up the loins. We talked about that last Sunday morning, the girding of the robes that men and women wore in order that they may move rapidly, or the robes that soldiers wore to protect their, uh, their feet and their legs from all manner of... Uh, uh, sticks and limbs and briars and so forth as they moved into battle. And so we're to gird, we are to place our mind's activity, we're to think about our life just as you would think about taking this oath. When you became born again, you took an oath. Now you may not have signed your name to anything, but we took an oath, an allegiance to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now this first command, let your mind's activity rest upon the confidence of the future grace of Christ Jesus' return. And he will mention that a number of times through the epistle. It's followed by four others. And we see that in these verses here. In verse 13, he talks about sober-mindedness. In verse 14, the third one is obedience as children of God that do not conform, non-conformance, to our former ignorance. In verse 15, he talks about instead of not conforming to our former ignorance, he says you're to conform to holiness. So there's a positive and there's a negative. Don't conform, negative, to your former lack of knowledge. That's what the word means. We'll see that as we move through this passage. Verse 15, number four, you are to conform to holiness. And in verse 17, he said, because God the Father is our judge, we are to conduct ourselves with fear, with righteous fear, as long as we live. In other words, we are never to take the Lord's name in vain by saying, well, the big man upstairs is going to take care of me. We're not to denigrate the holiness of God because we too are to be holy as he said. So those five principles 
are outlined in these three or four verses that we've read for you in your hearing this morning. Next slide, if you would. Verse uh, 13, the first one, he says, You're not to, you're, you are rather, to rest your, ho- uh, your mind in hope as obedient children. That's the understood implication that's found here. And remember, no chapter or verse division. So we read verse 13 and says, okay, we, that's, we, need to, we need to memorize verse 13. But really, verse 14 doesn't have anything to do. That's, that's, there's a Greek word for that. It's hogwash. No chapter and verse division, so they read consecutively. Let your mind be gird. Rest your mind as obedient children. One of the earmarks of holiness is obedience. All we have to do is look at Jesus Christ. Was Jesus obedient? All God's people said, Amen. Amen. Are we obedient like Jesus? No. Even Peter wasn't obedient like Jesus. We know that from what we're told in Scripture. Even Paul wasn't obedient like Jesus. But Jesus was. And so one of the earmarks of being holy is obedience. Another one is not conforming yourselves to the former lust. Your former lust because you were ignorant. And that's what verse 14 carries through that idea. And Peter here begins with our minds, not our hearts. Our minds, the mental faculties that God has given to us. Now, we think about a lot of things in our lives, and we should. But do you think about spiritual things? When is the last time that you thought about your personal holiness? In fact, if we were to extend the girding of your mind we would see that it means to understand with its disposition and plans. And you've heard me say a number of times, we must remember that not making a decision is making a decision. Before, uh, it was my birthday, wasn't it? One of the Father's Day that the boys gave me the pops. Was that my birthday or was that Father's Day? That was my birthday, okay. And so they wrote all manner of things across that, these big letters, P-O-P, pop. And one of the things that they wrote was this. Not making a decision means making a decision. Holiness is not an alternative lifestyle for the believer. And if we decide not to become holy, or if we just acquiesce to conformance, we've made a decision. Now Jesus, in Matthew 22, He actually quoted this a number of times, but in this particular passage, he quotes the Shema, taken from Deuteronomy chapter 6. There are two great laws, he said, and the first one is this one. 
And this passage begins, then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question. Lawyers are always good at asking questions, are they not? You watch these, you watch movies, you watch TV programs, and the lawyer will ask the, the witness a question, and then they say, just answer the question. Don't give me any of the frou-frou stuff that goes behind it. Just answer the question that I asked you. Well, a lawyer came to him and said, okay, Lord, just answer this question. And notice that Matthew says he tempted him. Not good to tempt the Lord. It's also not smart to tempt the Lord. And he said, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said, You love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your what? What's the word? What's the word? Mind. Mind. Well, I love Jesus with my heart. Well, I love Jesus with my soul. But it's too much for me to think about him. That hurts. Of course it hurts. To think about God hurts. We find the limits of our intellect thinking about God. So may I ask you this question this morning as we move through? Do you have the gospel figured out? Do you understand all of the procedures, all of the the legal steps of the gospel? Do you have all of that figured out? What about holiness? But that's an aspect of the gospel. Jesus went on to say this is the first, and it's the greatest command. Now the second one is like unto it, and he went on to say you love your brother as yourself but it's not the greatest command. It is the implication of the Shema. That's what Peter was writing about. Peter heard this, by the way. So what did Jesus mean? To love, the God, with, uh, to love God with our whole being, including our minds. Well, that's what he defines here in these next four commands that we have in the verses that are following. You to rest your mind and hope as obedient children. Next slide, if you would. His primary focus for the mind is sober-mindedness. We broached this subject last Sunday morning, and this does not mean to avoid alcohol, although one of the implications here is that we're not to be governed. In fact, we probably won't make it this morning, but Ephesians 5 talks about holiness in great detail, and we'll see where he says, Do not be drunk with wine because it's excess, but be ye controlled, be ye filled with the Spirit. That's sober-mindedness. The word sobriety, self-control in everything. That's tall order. In everything. Not just abstaining or drinking alcohol uh, uh, 
diligently or whatever what's the word I'm looking for, not drinking it to excess. That's not what Paul, Peter is saying. Peter, Peter is saying everything. It's one of the earmarks of the, of the fruit of the Spirit, by the way. Our kids sang it during Bible school. It's self-control. I must confess, there are times when I don't have a great deal of self-control. And so he says you to be sober-minded, you to rest your hope in grace. Now I mentioned to you that there are two segments here, uh, verse 13 through chapter 2. And these first verses that we're reading here, verses 13 through 17, is a series of imperatives. I've got six instructions. Actually, it's five. You could div- divvy it up and have six, but I tried to narrow it down to five. They state ethical implications of a life of hope. There are some requirements. We don't just get born again and then Jesus takes us to heaven. Our lives are changed. We become new creatures in Christ and he leaves us here so that we can live holy lives. And then the second section here in the holiness of the gospel is from verse 18 through the first three verses of chapter 2. And Peter there breaks into another great doxology about Jesus Christ and also through that the Word of God. So all of this becomes integral. What you learn here in these first 12 verses, I'm going to lay out for you in these next few verses. Now keep this in mind. He's writing to pilgrims. Look back at verse 1 of of chapter 1. To the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. To aliens, your translation may have, or sojourners it may be. But this translation says pilgrims. And the pilgrims in verse 1 were primarily pagans who bowed to gods that possessed greater power but not greater virtue than humans. All you need to do is Google the Greco-Roman pantheon of gods and you will find that they were, yes, more powerful or at least uh, those that conjured them up in their minds made them more powerful like the superheroes. But you will notice that the superheroes of the comic book variety, whether it be Marvel or DC Comics or whatever, you will notice that they still have human fallacies. And so they are based not on the Trinity, but on pagan thought. So they had greater power, but not greater virtue than humans. And these pagan gods demanded loyalty, sacrifice, indulgences, a number of things that were required by the pagan gods, all earthly constructed, by the way. But none of them were holy. They were not separate from sin. 
one of the primary characteristics of holiness, being separate from sin. None of them were separate from sin. In fact, they indulged their every desire. There was little hope in these gods because they descended into the same vices that humans had. No thought of sin. So Peter's writing to these pilgrims that have had their life changed. He opens the epistle by teaching them all these wonderful doctrines and why we have hope in the gospel. And now he's saying, okay, we have hope in the gospel because it leads to holiness and that separates you and I from the pagan world. Now the word pagan just means of the earth. That's all it means. So the pagan ethical system, and we still have it today. If you place your faith in government, that's a pagan. That's of the earth. That's a pagan system. Pagan ethical system. Aim to minimize pain and exalt enthusiasm and pleasure. Does that sound familiar to you? Minimize pain and exalt enthusiasm and pleasure. We talked about this last week. These are distractions. And so Peter was exposed to this. Paul had been exposed to this. The writers of the New Testament exposed to this. In a way, really, that Jesus wasn't exposed because he never traveled more than maybe 100 miles from where he was born, 100, maybe, maybe 200. They understood this. And so today... Even believers are given to minimizing pain. Nothing wrong with that. Some pain is so severe that you want to minimize it. As I said, I had vertigo this past week. And if you've ever had it, it is, is debilitating, very, very nauseous feeling. One of those things where you just have to lay down, close your eyes. You want to minimize that. There's nothing wrong with that. But if it's carried to extreme, we now have an addiction problem in our country from people taking painkillers, opiates. They'd never think of injecting themselves with heroin, but they'll take prescription drugs to the point that, in some cases, they overdose. And then exalting enthusiasm and pleasure. We can use the halftime uh, shows of the Super Bowl. When was the last time that you could sit down with small children and watch the halftime show of the Super Bowl? And yet we have become, in many cases, indifferent to that. Which is an indication that we are conforming to the culture. Does all this sound familiar? See, this was written 2,000 years ago, and it's every bit as relevant as if it were written yesterday.
Do you have the gospel figured out? Next slide, if you would, Logan. So in verse 14, he says, as obedient children. Now, there's a play on words here. Go back with me to Ephesians chapter 2. I've got it several places down here. But let's go back to Ephesians chapter 2. And of course, this is Paul's epistle to the church at Ephesus. <clears throat> so Peter says, one of the earmarks of having your mind engaged by the Spirit of God is, to, is obedience. And he said, this differs from the world. And the first three verses of chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians, and you, he made alive. He quickened you, the old King James says. Great word who were dead in trespasses and sins. Sinners are not debilitated. They're dead to spiritual things. And that's mentioned time and time again throughout the Bible, not just the New Testament. Who were dead in your trespasses and your sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. You walked according to the culture. According to the prince of the power of the air. Now, who is that? Who's the prince of the power of the air? He defines it. Yes, Satan. The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So Peter says you're to be children. You're to be sons of obedience because Paul said at one time you were sons of disobedience. Which would you rather be? A child of God that is obedient. Or a child of the culture that's disobedient. And he goes on. Among whom also we all once. Paul includes himself in that. I can include myself in that. Once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh, enthusiasm and pleasure, and of the mind, because the mind is controlled by sin. And were by nature. Not only were we dead, but our natural bent made us children of wrath. Now, children of wrath, whose wrath? God's wrath. Children of God's wrath. Just as others. And then two of the most beautiful words in all of the Bible, but God. but God who is rich rich 
in mercy because of his great love. You think the devil loves you? You think the devil loves the world system that has, that has evolved because of our sin? You think the devil will at one time, when one day he's going to return and he's going to redeem and change everything for you and I? You think the devil would have gone to the cross for sinners? You think the devil would have withstood all of the persecution and the torment and the... Um, the unmitigated hatred that was poured out on Jesus Christ. You know who the devil is? He's a great slanderer, by the way. But you know who he is? Jesus said he was a liar from the beginning. You know who, who the devil is? He is the greatest coward ever. Ever. Who's your superhero? Beyond that, who's God the Son? You got the gospel figured out? No, you don't. I don't. The focus that Peter has here is on the nonconformity of folk that claim Christ as Redeemer. We'll start to see that in verse 18. First Peter has passages that are similar as what Paul wrote in uh, not only here in Ephesians chapter 2. You can go back now to First uh, Peter chapter 1. And this is found a number of times. Paul said, obviously, we've quoted this over the past couple of weeks, do not be conformed to this world. So we're talking about nonconformance, no conformity. None. That's where the mind comes in. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul says it. Peter says it. Jesus said it. The Shema says it. It is sprinkled all throughout the Word of God. Now, there are three defining words in verse 14. They are as obedient children, the word obedience. It means attentiveness and compliance. The second one is conformity. Not conforming or conformity. Not conforming yourselves to the former lust. Not to fashion your life. Not to conform to the same likeness. This has to do with idolatry. We'll see that momentarily. And the third one is ignorance. Agnoe. Anytime you want to make a word negative in the Greek, you, tend, you generally add the prefix a or A-G. And so Peter uses the word agnoe. 
against knowledge, literally is what it means. Against knowledge. A want of knowledge, a lack of knowledge. And he says it is inexcusable. That's the reason he wrote first 12 verses. Your lack of knowledge is inexcusable. I have written to you these first 12 verses. Now, similar thought is found in Ephesians 4, so go back with me there. We've looked at Ephesians 2. Let's look at Ephesians 4. Paul is describing here a, a walk, a change in a pagan lifestyle into a new creation. Talks about that in 2 Corinthians verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles. Uh, um, rather, no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds. They are agnoe, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. That's a pretty dark picture, is it not? Very similar to what we see in Romans chapter 1. Paul carries this theme, and Peter is, mentions it here as well. Next slide. So in the time remaining this morning, let's look at these next three, these words that are found here in verse 14. First one is obedience. Now, obedience is, is, is granted. It is difficult. We, I, I read for you the oath taken by Immigrants who want to become citizens of the United States. Lots of obedience required in that oath. Some of you take oaths, have taken oaths in the past. Most of you here this morning are married, maybe desire to be married, looking forward to be married, whatever. You're going to take an oath. And this oath that I read for you is done publicly. It's not, well, we can do it over Zoom. Because anybody can do anything over Zoom. It needs to be done publicly. It needs to be witnessed. And so this type of obedience carries with it the stipulation of our witness to Jesus Christ. The attentiveness and compliance. The children of God display the nature of their Father God. If you say that we're born again, then we are individuals that are to display by the power of the Spirit of God the characteristics of God. Now, we don't. We don't always. Sometimes, perhaps, we do, but we don't always. That's where grace comes in. It talks about God who is rich in mercy. That's where mercy comes in. But you have to claim that. God provides it. We are responsible to claim that. Part of our new nature, the Bible talks about being born again, is obedience. Peter continues in verse 15, and he defines obedience as holiness. If you're going to be an obedient child, you will be holy. 
Then he says, talks about non-conforming or uh, not conforming yourselves to the form of lust, but he goes on to talk about conformity later on, and this is the word, to fashion, to design, to fabricate, to conform to, to the same likeness. This was a word that was used to describe what idol makers made, how they took materials and fabricated idols. And that's what Peter's saying. You're not conforming in your, yourselves to your former lust. You're not being idol worshipers. And the greatest idol, of course, is self. The pagans worshipped idols. Idol makers were typically artisans that were paid to fashion images that represented certain demigods. Old Testament idols were fabricated from wood, from stone, sometimes from precious metals, sometimes adorned with, with uh, jewels. They were shiny because people like shiny things. You go to Daniel chapter, chapter 2, you find the... Uh, the uh, idol that was 90 feet tall that Nebuchadnezzar had built, and it was overlaid with gold. Now, it's hard to miss something that's 90 feet tall overlaid with gold because people like shiny things. The Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant because it was overlaid with gold. It was shiny. And they attempted to worship it. They put it in one of their temple, Temple of Dagon. All sorts of nefarious things began to happen because in the Ark of the Covenant was a representative of the name of God. In the Greco-Roman world, there was a pantheon of about 30 gods. And they often were, by the time that Peter's writing this, they were not fashion. They did draw them, or they sometimes painted them, or they sometimes made sculptures, sculptures from them. But they didn't bow down before these. They had little altars in their home. They had little altars in the, cross, uh, the crossroads as people would make journeys. Folks are making journeys this week, come to a crossroad. In Greco-Roman world, they would have a little shrine. And it was your responsibility as a worshiper of a pagan god, whoever that may have been, to make a little sacrifice, to put a little incense there, to make sure that you were able to travel safely. The three most important Roman gods were Jupiter, who was the protector of the state, thought to be similar or very similar to Zeus, who was a Greek god. Juno, who was the protector of women. And Minerva, who was the goddess of craft and wisdom. She was also the goddess of witchcraft. So this was the world that Peter was writing in. Next slide. Now, here's the thing. 
Romans believed that each household had protective spirits. And these protective spirits watched over them. Does that sound familiar? The protective spirits for each household watched over them. And the paterfamilias. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Paterfamilias. The father. Just before they ate, would throw an offering into the fire when the family came together for the evening meal. This invoked the spirit for protection of the Roman family at night. Peter says, don't conform to this. Peter and Paul knew this. And they spoke to Christians, Paul in his way, and Peter now in this, by saying, do not conform to the customary culture of the day. You are to be different. Now, our passion, our passions seem to be customary and normal. We've grown up with a lot of them. Traditions, if you want to use that word. And sometimes we think that whatever is normal is therefore right, whatever that is defined as. But we are to resist the passions of our ignorance. And we are to gird our minds. Now the word ignorance Agnoe means a want of knowledge. It also means a lack of knowledge that is inexcusable. We've already read from Ephesians chapter 4. In Acts 17, Paul is preaching to the Athenians on Mars Hill, and he says, In the time of your ignorance, God ignored. But now commands all men everywhere to repent. Nowhere in Scripture are sinners ever mentioned as being innocent. Never, never, ever are they mentioned as being innocent. They are mentioned as being ignorant. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3. Verse 3, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Evolutionary nonconformity. For this they willingly forget, willfully forget. And by the word of God, the heavens were of old, the earth standing out of the water and in the water. And then he describes the the uh, judgment of the earth by water. And then he also says that they are preserved 
and reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Do you have the gospel figured out? Here's a portion people want to avoid. No, we don't have the gospel figured out. And so Peter uses the very same term he's talking about, willfully forget. They are agnoe. They don't want to have this knowledge in their minds. I hope you're not like that this morning. One more slide, and this will close. Next slide, Paul. Now, here's the key. Sometimes we're ignorant like the Athenians were in Acts 17. We have not been exposed to the gospel. If we had been exposed to the gospel, the Spirit of God perhaps would have moved in our hearts, brought us to faith in Jesus Christ. Sometimes we're like, we're like that. And sometimes there are probably millions of people across this globe that are like that. We should pray for them that they come to a, an understanding of the gospel, that the Spirit of God speaks to them about the beauty and wonder of Jesus Christ, their Redeemer. But more often than not here in America, being exposed to the gospel time and time again, we're like the second thing here, and sometimes we're willingly ignorant because to desire truth means we forfeit any rights we assume we may have. And so we are willfully ignorant. We construct a God, we fashion the God of our own choosing. We are like Thomas Jefferson, great man though he was, he took the Bible, especially the New Testament, and the portions that he didn't like, he cut it out. Cut them out. And so you can buy today, you can go on Amazon and buy the Jefferson Bible, which only has a portion of it. He discarded the entire Gospel of John. Don't like that. And so, close with this this morning. We'll open with this next Sunday morning too because there's a thought process here. Paul said this. By the way, believers don't have rights. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own. Lord, it's my right. You don't understand, Lord. You are not your own. You were redeemed. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Many years ago, there was a little boy that loved sailing ships. And so, <clears throat> as he grew, he developed a skill for carving ships. And eventually he made what he considered to be the pinnacle of his carving ability, his fabricating ability. And so he made uh, a fairly good sized two to three feet long sailing vessel. 
And he spent hours making it. And he would make these ships, and then he would take them down beside a river, and he would launch them. And all of his ships, he would have somebody on the other side to make sure that if it sailed across the, the river, they were able to get it. Well, the particular ship that he loved, he placed it in the river, and a sudden wind came up. And down the river, the ship that he had spent hundreds of hours fabricating went. And he ran after it as fast as he could. He had someone on the other side. They ran after And because of the wind, the current was in the center of the river, and off it went. And he lost it. It happened about a year or so later, he made his way into a village and into a shop, and there in the shop was his ship. Someone had found it, rescued it, whatever. Now the ship is on sale. So he goes to the owner of the, of the uh, store, and he says, listen, I, I made that ship. Yeah, uh-huh. No, actually, it has my initials on it. Yeah, uh-huh. So... He showed him some identification, showed him where the initials were. He says, I'd like to take that ship home with me. And the owner said, yes, sir, that'll be $100. To which the young man went home and began to work again, saved his money, eventually went back and redeemed the ship. That's what Jesus did. He fabricated us, made us to be holy, set us free, and we chose our own course. And before the foundation of the world, Peter says, he became our Redeemer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that in our former ignorance, Father, you revealed to us who we were. Perhaps it was our parents, perhaps it was our friends, perhaps it was a preacher, whatever. Someone took the time to share with us the beauty of the gospel. We did not figure it out. We don't have it figured out today. But you came and you redeemed us. Help us to understand that we are to be obedient children. Any here this morning or perhaps listening and watching via the internet that do not know your Savior, may they understand that God is our creator. He fabricated us. We sinned, and then he redeemed us in the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Have your sweet will your divine way, the remainder of this service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> We're going to sing one verse of a hymn this morning. And we'll give you an opportunity to respond in kind.
to the message. If you're here today and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, there's good news. We can't save you. But there's better news. Jesus can. And not only can he, but he will. As we sing this morning, make your way out of the pew. We can take you to a private prayer room and there with an open Bible lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can leave here this morning redeemed with all of the benefits that the Lord Jesus gives us and his person himself. As a child of God, the Lord may be leading you into the fellowship of this church. We encourage you to come this morning if you want to unite here. Maybe you know the Lord as Savior. You need to follow the Lord in believer's baptism. We encourage you to make that decision today. As believers, this is a difficult passage. This is one of those things that we don't. when we come to this, we know we don't have the gospel figured out. Oh, he's talking about holiness. Yeah. And that applies to me too. What number, Brother Mike? 626. 626. If the Lord has spoken to you, won't you come? So we stand and sing.